in between the negotiations with MLB for the new PBA and the pandemic suddenly thrust upon all of us, with everything you're having to deal with on an organizational level, have you found time at all to miss baseball in the past oh, month? Dearly, dearly. I, uh, I live about seven minutes away from Clearwater's, uh, the Phillies ballpark there where the Threshers are in Florida State League. And we're about uh, oh, 15 minutes away from the Blue Jays complex. So, you know, we get plenty of Florida State League action in between those two places. And then, you know, the Trop is obviously only about a half hour away. So we get get to see some American League action there. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a tough time for everybody and, and particularly baseball fans, I think, are really, uh, you know, having that tease of spring training and going to a few games and then having it all pulled away makes it a little harder. You know, you didn't even get games that count. Yeah, pulled away right at the time where it seemed like pitchers were just starting to get their arms ready for opening day, too, where yeah, you exactly. were going four and five and looked just like he was going to dominate. And yep. that's when we kind of got yanked out from under us, but uh, yeah. understandably so. Uh, yeah. Did you do anything on opening day to kind of commemorate it in your mind, at least, even though there was no current baseball to watch? Yeah, you know, we uh, on opening day for the Major League season, I, uh, I watched Kerry Woods' 20 strikeout game. Love it. So that was uh, that's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, I do have plans to rewatch the 2016 World Series again from start to finish as a Cubs <laughs> fan. So, uh, th- those are always good things to watch. And uh, then for the minor league baseball opening day, we did a big uh, virtual opening day called it at home opener, uh, and we you know spent a lot of time most of the day doing various uh, you know fan centric activities online that fans could participate in and, and that was a lot of fun i got a real good response to that so um but you know it doesn't it doesn't top the crack of the bat and the thump of the catcher's mitt right so it's yeah. uh, or, or the beer and hot dogs so <laughs> uh, yeah i i get the feeling that beer and hot dog sales honestly went through the roof from about early april until now just for people trying to simulate it for themselves uh oh yeah a particular opening day at home activity that minor league baseball did that seemed like it really resonated with people or was it just kind of the day in general that people responded to? You know, I I thought it was kind of the day in general, really. I mean, there were so many different things going on, whether it was people posting pictures of themselves at ballparks and, or selecting what their favorite foods are, what their, you know, favorite toppings on hot dogs, things of that nature. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that, you know, um, we haven't really done in the past because people could go to the ballpark. So it actually turned into a pretty nice campaign, and, and our guys did a really nice job with that. Beautiful. And, of course, the correct answer to favorite topping on hot dog, bratwurst, or any sausage is the secret stadium sauce in Milwaukee's Miller Park, which is head and shoulders above everything you know, else. Yeah, the last time I was at Miller Park, I think, was the All-Star Game in 03, I think it was. Oh, gosh. Did, did you boo Bud Selig off the field? <laughs> no comment. Fair enough. Yep, yep. <laughs> But no, that was that was a fun night, a great game, and and uh, I remember Tory Hunter's catch on Barry Bonds fly ball. That was the lasting uh, memory for me, I guess, from that one. But and then Bud going like this. So yeah, what was it like in the park? Uh, did you see Barry Bonds lifting Tory Hunter off the ground in real time after that catch? Yeah, yeah. You just kind of. I always like watching the guy's reaction when somebody robs their home run. You know and. Do they get pissed and slam their helmet, or are they like, oh, man, 
dang, you know, whatever. And to see Bonds keep jogging out there and pick up Torrey was pretty funny. It had to be the last, and for, for all we know, the only time where Barry Bonds was unquestionably likable by everybody in the park <laughs> in that gesture. That that, uh, that was a pretty – that got a lot of laughs from people, yeah. And I, yeah. He's, not, he's not somebody that draws a lot of laughs in general, so. Yeah, it was like for a second he, he took – right. Yeah, for a second he took down the curtain of surliness and kind of got to see that, yeah, there is somebody who actually enjoys being the best player on the planet in there. And yeah. it's kind of a shame we never saw more of that from him. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's a hell of a player, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, one more question before we dive into the heart of uh, why I brought you here on the episode. Uh, since you mentioned Kerry Woods' 20K game, do you have memories of where you were the day that happened? Yeah, I was at uh, Principal Park, and back then it was Secretary Stadium in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, we had a game that night and, and, uh, the team was out taking batting practice that afternoon. And we put the game on the video board once he got to like 14 strikeouts. Cause they would, the team had been watching in the clubhouse before they went out for batting practice. And then, uh, you know, nobody of course wanted to go out and watch batting practice because Woody had been with us, but three weeks before that, or two weeks before that. Um, so all those guys knew him and, you know, he had started the year with us and, and uh, so we, we put it on the big screen out in the stadium. And when the Astros guys would come up to bat, you know, BP pretty much ended. You know, they <laughs> they would hit while the Cubs were at bat. And then when uh-huh. they'd come up there and get a couple strikes on somebody, everybody just kind of stopped what they were doing and watched to see if we got strike three. And it was pretty cool to see. And, and we were in my boss's office because he had a nice big office and a big flat screen TV in there. We were all just kind of crowded around to watch the last inning and, it was uh, it was pretty awesome to watch that. That was uh, he had actually been my roommate in Des Moines the year before, so I got to know him pretty well. And wow. uh, so to see somebody that you actually you know know do something like that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, the, the sense that this is somebody that I've had I, I assume many many conversations late into the night with, oh, and yeah. all of a sudden here he is making history. Yeah, yeah, you know you're sitting here just like wow, is this you know, you start hearing them say, you know, Roger Clemens did it, and you're like, that was it. it. Yeah. And you're like, damn, wow. You know, but it was, uh, that was one day where, you know, he's he's a legend in Chicago for that one game. Mm-hmm. Always, yeah. And, and, and he had a great year. I mean, he's rookie of the year and all that, and that was just kind of the, that one day was pretty much the high point of his career. Yeah, it's the one thing that everyone will always, whenever he meets random Cub fans in the street or even just random baseball fans, that's the first yeah. thing that they'll mention. And yeah. it's amazing to think that that you did that, as you say, three weeks after being in Des Moines and yeah. having everybody who stopped to watch him as his teammates. Like, yeah. that's, and, and as you say, yeah, I mean, a really solid career after that. And yeah. there are many indelible moments in my mind from games where I saw him in person. But, yeah, nothing in terms of baseball history will ever come yeah. to that. It was uh, funny because I uh, actually ran into him at Game Seven of the World Series in '16, and wonderful. Yeah, he looks, he's totally different now. He's real thin and everything. He looks good and everything, but it, you know, a lot of people don't recognize him because you just figure he's so much bigger and you know the big Texan and all that. But mm-hmm. you know, he he fit right in, and uh, it was it was good to see him that night because that was a pretty special night for everybody that's been a Cubs fan or been a part of the organization in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I remember him in 2003. Uh, he took that series so hard at the end after they lost Game mm-hmm. 7. 
and to the media was almost like the self-flagellating albino monk from a Dan Brown novel. It just, it's on my back. It's on me. And I can imagine seeing in, in game seven, the incredible unburdening that had to be for him and just realize that whatever monkey was left from that experience was lifted off his back. And it's it's great to think that 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 gave him a little bit of peace after that. And I'd like to think that the Cubs winning game six of the NLCS that year probably helped do that as well, because, Mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, that got him over the hump and got him to the world series. And, and uh, that was, I flew up to Chicago for that one with my brother, just, on a whim, hoping it would only be that night, and we'd get to see the the clincher, and we got lucky. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, that was quite a relief. That was many, many years in the making. Yep, yes, it was. For no matter how old you were, too, it all, it felt yeah. like it still was many years in the making. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, we'll start the podcast right now, then, since uh, we are in the midst of baseball discussion. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 25, the Jim Tomei episode of Three Strikes You're Out. My name is Ken Schultz. I am a contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. Also, stand-up comedian, asterisk, assuming stand-up is ever a thing again at any point in the future. The other voice you are hearing right now on this podcast is the Senior Director of Communications for Minor League Baseball, Jeff Lance. Jeff, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It is a pleasure to talk to you, especially now because uh, up until the point, this point for the past several weeks, I've been doing a lot of discussions of classic games and favorite players. We did a whole Ryan Sandberg episode a couple uh, weeks ago with some of my best Cub podcast friends. And then all of a sudden, we get a bit of news in the middle of last week, and it turns out news about baseball in April? Is that allowed anymore? Is that a thing? Yeah. And uh, so word leaked out to, I think, was it Baseball America about the current negotiations between MLB and minor league baseball? Yeah, they uh, they ran a story saying that basically, uh, you know, minor league baseball was prepared to accept major league baseball's uh, proposal to contract 42 teams and, and go down to 120 um, starting in 2021. And and we were a little taken aback by that because we haven't agreed to anything and the negotiations are still in progress. So we were kind of surprised and ended up uh, issuing a statement that said, you know, the the negotiations are ongoing and, and our goal is to keep as many of these 160 teams as possible. And then, you know, it, it really created a lot of angst with a lot of teams and, and employees. And, um, you know, it, it said in there that, you know, they were looking to uh, possibly take over control of minor league baseball and have or major league baseball run all the different levels of minor league baseball, which obviously isn't a good thing for the minor league baseball office. So, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, didn't know what to make of it, but, uh, you know, our our negotiating team assured us that you know nothing's been agreed to, nothing's been decided, and and the two sides are continuing to to make proposals and continue the dialogue. Yeah, and uh, it, honestly, I was taken aback as a baseball fan seeing that as well, just because we had seen the proposal um, back. I want to say was it in, during this past winter when it first hit the yeah. news that they wanted yeah. to contract the forty-two teams. Yeah. And there was a huge response of a wave of negativity uh, in response to that, so t- to the point where, as uh, my friend, my podcaster friend, Sarah Sanchez points out frequently, 
it was the rare thing where you saw Democrats and Republicans on a national level united in condemnation of that. Yeah, I mean, it was the definition of bipartisan support. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we had everybody on, or not everybody, but we had many, many supporters on both sides of the, of the aisle there that uh, were, you know, they're passionate baseball fans. They understand what these teams mean to their communities. They understand the investments that have been made by their constituents, you know, whether it's uh, a tax increase to build a ballpark. Uh, they, they understand the value that, um, you know, having a minor league baseball team in your community means to that community. And, uh, you know, I always use the example, I, you know, I grew up in Eastern Iowa, but I knew where Billings, Montana was on a map uh-huh. the because of the Billings Mustangs. Yeah. And that's where the Cedar Rapids Colonels, who the team that I grew up going to games, that's where their players came from. That's where, that's why I knew where Billings, Montana was, you know, and unfortunately with a plan like this, kids growing up won't have, you know, the Billings Mustangs to cheer for, um, you know, like I said, I grew up going to games in Cedar Rapids and, and I was a Cubs fan and they were a Reds affiliate. And I ended up buying a Cedar Rapids or a Cincinnati Reds hat because when Reggie Sanders and Eddie Taubensee and Jeff Branson and all these guys, Rob Dibble, who, you know, all these guys I remembered watching in Cedar Rapids were in the big leagues with Cincinnati. I wanted to get a Cincinnati Reds hat because I liked Cincinnati Reds because I like those guys. And unfortunately that's the kind of uh, fandom, I guess that, you know, we're going to lose if these teams go away. Yeah. The minor leagues on that level that Cedar Rapids is on, especially when you're on like that class A level, mm-hmm. you get that experience of seeing these incredible baseball talents, guys who turn into the Rob Dibbles of the world, but yeah. you get to see them more just as themselves and without having to put on the air of being a major leaguer, and right. there's something that kind of connects you even more intimately to players like that when you're able to see them and kind of they're still trying to work their way up the ladder stage yeah. of their development. No question. I mean, I was 14, 15 years old or whatever, and uh, an older buddy of mine has a driver's license. We'd drive up to the games and we'd wait afterwards. And, you know, Reggie Sanders would come out after the game and give us the batty crack that night and sign yeah. for us and talk to us about baseball or whatever, you know, and, and, you know, I, I still have my Reggie Sanders autographed crack bat that I got back in 1990 or whatever it was 89, maybe I, you know, it's those kind of things. Those that's what develops baseball fans and makes people want to go to games and, and follow teams and follow players. And it's just, uh, it will be unfortunate that that can no longer be the case in, in 40 plus markets. Yeah, and, and not only that, but when you have a piece of memorabilia, memorabilia like that, and then you know a decade, decade and a half later, when you see Reggie Sanders as part of the World Series winning champion America, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks, mm-hmm. you kind of get to see, you get to feel a little bit of that narrative where you sure. were there at the beginning, and now you see him at the very pinnacle of his profession, and something emotionally gratifying about that. I think no question. Yeah, I mean, I one of my best friends in the world is a guy that was playing for the Kenosha twins in 1991. And I met him at the ball game at, after the game in, in Cedar Rapids and we just kind of hit it off. And, you know, I got to see him catch the final out in the American league division series to get the twins to the ALCS and just seeing the joy on his face and watching him run in and jump on the pile 
I was almost in tears because I was so happy for him because I knew what a challenge it had been for him to get there. So, mm. you know, you develop an emotional bond to the players, the teams, the organizations, all that. And, and it's just, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that that's going to be gone from potentially be gone from, you know, places all across the country, really. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up the point because I grew up in the North suburbs of Chicago in a town called Vernon Hills, which is about a 45 minutes ride from Kenosha, right at the yeah. Wisconsin Illinois border. And when I was in that kind of sweet spot of growing up as a baseball fan, about seven, eight years old, my dad and I would go to at least two or three games a year up to Kenosha to see at the minor league level. And I would buy a program all the time. And the thing I loved the most is you knew where to walk to meet the players when they were going between the clubhouse and the field. So I get the program full of autographs, mostly with guys who didn't make it to the bigs, but then the occasional, I think Lenny Webster was one who made the twins roster at some point in the big league level. And, that was a cool aspect, and I just remember that was an important part of my baseball formative years, mm-hmm. and the Twins eventually moved, I think, to Fort Wayne, I want to say, when I was like 11 or 12, about 91-ish or so, yeah. and there was like a definite feeling like something had been taken from me as a baseball yeah. fan at that point, because yeah. there would be no more Kenosha Twins games, even yeah. though I grew up 45 minutes away from my favorite team in the world in big league baseball at Wrigley field, that was still, you know, something that I was losing. And the idea that there are 40 some odd communities that could all be Thanos at the same time like this is kind of gut wrenching. When you think about MLB just deciding it's okay for hundreds of thousands of fans to feel that feeling I felt when a team is taken away. Yeah. And, and you know, those feelings are, shared by others by the, the volume of emails and phone calls that we got once this news broke that they were going to look, you know, I mean, I, I've got a letter right here from a 11 year old kid in West Virginia that wants us to save the West Virginia power, you know, hmm. and I don't know what to tell him other than I'm with you. You know, I, we, I don't want the power. I've never been to a power game, but I don't want them to go anywhere either. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's cause I know, how devastating it would be for me if the Cedar Rapids Colonels were going to disappear. You know, yeah. I, I would be first. And, uh, so it's uh, it's a tough situation, but you know we're we're doing everything we can to save as many as possible. Did you on the minor league baseball off official level? Did you get the sense that there was a similar outcry when this story leaked last week that there was when it originally did, or did? Uh, did the fact that it leaked during the middle of this pandemic have any tampering effect on that? Um, probably tampered it a little bit just because everybody's got so many, so many more things to worry about these days. Uh, you know, when you, when you consider the, the unemployment rates these days, uh, people being furloughed and, and laid off, it's just, there's people that have a lot of things to worry about, you know, in real life. And it kind of makes a, a baseball negotiation kind of take a back seat, but, uh, you know, I think the people that are most affected by it are still very, very passionate about it. And, um, you know, we, we certainly haven't forgot about them. We're still, you know, negotiating and trying to come up with plans to save as many teams as we can and, and, and keep these, keep baseball in these communities. So, um, you know, I think one, one area where it kind of is, hurt us in, in the with this pandemic is the support in Washington DC 
You know, mm. I think a lot of those people are still willing to fight for us, willing to help us out, but it's not quite the priority it was back in November, December, and January before all of this hit, um, which is certainly understandable. They're trying to get test kits and, and save lives, which is certainly more important than, you know, playing some baseball games this summer. But, um, you know, obviously we, we appreciate everything they have done to this point. And, you know, most of them are still willing to help us out and, and willing to do whatever they can to help the cause. Yeah. And in order to save minor league baseball, it first helps to have all the fans be able to leave the house. So I can exactly, exactly. Certainly understand yeah, that, why that would be the priority. How yeah. uh, how would you characterize the way has the pandemic changed the way that you guys gone about negotiating with Major League Baseball in any way because it's so all encompassing as a news story? Um, I don't think it really has. Now I'm not at the negoti- negotiating table, but you know I think the bottom line is we want to get a deal done that is beneficial for minor league baseball teams as well as Major League Baseball teams. Um, you know we want to improve the facilities. We want to improve the the travel for the players you know make if we need to realign some leagues we can certainly do that um you know i, I think the 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 points that we're trying to negotiate and and trying to do i don't think those have changed at all uh as a result of the pandemic but i think it's made it a little more difficult just because you know a lot of our teams are really struggling right now um, mm-hmm. financially you know you the way our business model is you know you spend September through March, basically spending money, whether it's payroll or, uh, you know, buying the bobbleheads, buying the T-shirts, all the giveaway items for the year. So for those, you know, seven months or whatever, the it's all money out, you know, and, and you're expecting this huge financial windfall starting April 9th that's going to last five months. Mm-hmm. And then you use that the money you make there to carry you through the next seven and start it all over again. Well, all of our teams had spent all that money and then opening day comes around and there's no windfall. They're kind of stuck, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, the business model has really, uh, you know, probably put a heightened emphasis on, on trying to get a deal done here. And, um, you know, a lot of people are looking for a little more security. Um, you know, they want them to know that, Hey, if we invest $1.5 million in, in new seats, for our ballpark that we're going to have a team and that's, you know, it's uh, certainly a, you know, a good position to take that we're going to wait and make sure we have a team before we spend that money on, on improving our facilities. So it's uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily changed the mindset of our negotiating team, but maybe the teams and how they're spending money and, and preparing uh, for what's next has probably been the most impacted uh, part of our business. Yeah. I, I guess it's probably one of the most important lessons that any business school can teach that before you invest a couple million dollars in your organization, make sure it still exists first. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, our, our president Pat O'Connor sent out a memo, uh, you know, towards the end of last season or maybe right after the end of the season that basically said, Hey, you know, we're in a tough negotiation here. Um, you know, it's going to be a, a long drawn out negotiation and we don't want anybody to spend money that, you know, they might not get back or get value out of down the road. So, um, you know, hopefully nobody spent too much money, uh, on something that might not be worth it down the end and down the road. But, 
you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. There's still some time. And, and uh, not, like I said, nothing's been decided at this point. When uh, MLB first presented this idea that they wanted to contract 42 or however many teams that they want to pick out of a hat based on the most sacred number in baseball history, uh, <laughs> when they first presented this idea, did it take your organization by surprise? Because I know as a fan, when that first hit the public airwaves, there was a sense of, why would you do that? Like that? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I... I, again, I can't speak for the guys on the negotiating team, but, you know, me personally, I'm like, wait a minute, what kind of sense does that make? You know, if you're trying to grow the game, uh, you know, increase fandom, just all the different things that as a professional sports league, I would think that you'd be interested in. Mm-hmm. It seems to go against all those models that would make sense. Now, you know, apparently they're more interested in saving money and, uh, you know, I, I subscribe to the old theory that you got to spend a little money to make some money. And, um, you know, whether it's minor league player payroll or, um, you know, whatever the case may be, I, you know, I, I just feel like it's probably a little on the short sighted, uh, end of things and, and probably not the, uh, you know, and I, and I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a homer for minor league baseball, you know, I, I uh, want to see all these teams survive and, and thrive. And um, so, yeah, I, I was taken back by it at first and, and still, you know, I still don't see why they would want to do it, but um, you know, I guess they have their reasons. Yeah. Um, and when discussions and analysts uh, dive deep into the issue, one of the things that they mention about a lot of the teams that MLB is it, occasionally is is looking to eliminate on the minor league level is that they talk about so many of them have facilities that are out of date. Do you get the sense that some of this might be almost a punishment for teams that haven't been able to get a public referendum passed for tax payer dollars to, to be spent on a new stadium? Uh, I don't know if punishment is the word. Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of teams over the years that um, have received some, uh, I guess leeway on lesser standard facilities, uh, you know, and they've struggled to to make the renovations that the teams want. And, you know, those are the teams that lose their affiliation every two or four years or whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, it, it's pretty clear, I guess, where, where the teams don't want to be necessarily uh, with their affiliates, but, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if punishment is a word, but I think they're interested in rewarding the markets that have built really nice ballparks. That you know, it, it certainly makes sense that they would want to play in the best possible facilities. So, um, you know, from that angle, I certainly understand it. Yeah, and I want to then that as part of this plan, it, when in terms of rewarding. Uh, cities that have built new minor league parks. I think there's also some risk if that they were even to float the idea that they would eliminate any of those teams. You have, you know, in many cases, tens of millions of taxpayer dollars spent in these facilities to all of a sudden have a team disappear. I would imagine MLB would open themselves up to some kind of litigation at that point too, in a lot of those instances, right? Yeah, possibly. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of cities that, you know, for the most part, our teams don't own their ballparks. It's it's owned by 
you know, the city, the county, some kind of, you know, some mix of the both of those two, um, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, it, you hate to see cities like Elizabeth in Tennessee where, you know, they had a, a vote whether they should fix up the clubhouse or renovate the fire station in mm-hmm. town. And they voted to renovate the ballpark. I think Good that Lord. was two years. I think that was two years ago now, and they renovated to fix the ballpark so that the Minnesota Twins would stay in Elizabethan. Well, now the you know the whole entire Appalachian League is on that list, you know, except for one team, I guess. But uh, you know, so that you know that that that's probably hard hard to swallow if you're a resident of the city of Elizabethan. You know yeah. that uh, you know however many millions of dollars that renovation used that could have been used for the public good in Elizabethan. And now it's, you know, now they don't have either. Yeah. But at that point, MLB owes you a fire station at the very least. <laughs> I'll let you fight that one. Yeah. I, that will be the first I'll thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, so in response to this story becoming a national story again, I found a link on one of the baseball blogs that I check frequently, Bleacher Nation, which everybody should visit because it's wonderful. Uh, but he had a link to a Des Moines Register story where the general manager of Clint, the Clinton Lumber Kings, a uh, fellow Midwestern League affiliate to Cedar Rapids, uh, Ted Torno, I believe his name was. Yeah. And he gave a pretty damn meaty quote to the Des Moines Register. Uh, now they see the opportunity to get rid of MILB, to really take it to another step forward because everyone's in that weakened state. Major League Baseball is using the pandemic to get rid of 42 teams and do it in a way that they're not going to be noticed. And this is one of, you know, the highest ranking officials on the Clinton Lumber Kings making this very, very public, very on the record statement to the Des Moines Register. And from a communication standpoint, does this help you guys in any way? Or do you do you feel like that since negotiations are still ongoing, do you kind of want to tamp down on that until a decision is reached? Yeah, you know, the, the PR guy in me says, you know, hey, let's let's pump the brakes and maybe not criticize the other side just yet, but you know, Ted's a very passionate guy. He's been in the game for a very long time. And, and quite frankly, he and the lumber Kings and the Burlington bees down there in Eastern Iowa, they're fighting for their lives. And Ted understands that. And, you know, that's, uh, he's got a right to, to say what he feels. And, and, you know, if he thinks that's the right time to say it, then that's his call. But, um, you know, obviously you never, when you're negotiating, you never want to irritate somebody that, you know, seems to have a little more leverage than you do at the table. Um, you know, but you know, like I said, I, it's hard to blame somebody when they're fighting for their existence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have every right in the world to be mad when, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, it's do or die for them. And, yeah. You know, and they might end up if this thing doesn't work out, you know, they, they could end up with a, some kind of an independent setup or a college summer league setup, but you know, that that's so much different from being an affiliated minor league baseball team that Ted's fighting to continue being a, a minor league baseball team. That's affiliated with affiliated with a major league team. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to criticize him for, you know, fighting for his club. Yeah. And, and timing wise, quite frankly, probably could be, a little bit better, but if I'm a fan of a Clinton Lumber Kings or really any minor league team that's close to my town, 
that's what I want to hear from somebody in charge. Yeah. That- yeah. I mean, you want to know that he's passionate, which Ted, of course, is. And, and you know, you want to know that they're fighting to keep that baseball team as an affiliated team there. And, and you know, it's uh, Ted will always tell you what he thinks. That's that's one thing about that we all know about Ted. So, um, but again, you know, he's he's fighting for his team's existence. And, and, and you know, he's he's uh, he's got a strong feeling about it. and. You know, he didn't say anything that I, I don't think has um, been thought by many people. Um, he just didn't say it to a reporter, I guess. Right. Yeah, it's a very baseline kind of sports radio kind of level of thinking, but just approaching from the idea that as a fan, I want to know that the people in charge of my team are as pissed off about this as I am. So yeah. there is something viscerally satisfying about that. Yeah, for sure. And I don't That's want refreshing. to. Uh, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. And I don't want to, as someone who's talking about this issue with you and, and as someone who is emotionally invested in it, I don't want to be making the people you're negotiating with upset either. But I do also want to ask you at least a little bit about Rob Banford. Uh, so mm-hmm. no comment is definitely an acceptable answer to any of this. Uh, but okay. I, I guess the, the most tactful way I can think of to ask it is, have you noticed any kind of difference in minor league baseball's relationship to MLB since Rob Banford took office as commissioner? Uh it's hard for me to say, you know, I, I've been here for five years now. I, I started here at the beginning of 2015. And um, before that I was uh, in Baltimore with the Orioles for seven years. And so I, I, you know, I, I had worked in minor leagues for 11 years before going to Baltimore. So I had a pretty good grasp of what minor league life was like and what that was all about. And, and, you know, how our relationship with the Chicago Cubs was and, um, you know, and then I went to Baltimore and I, I did a lot of work with our affiliates um, all up and down the East Coast there. And, um, you know, I, I, I was more familiar with the team to team, you know, the team to affiliate relationship than than I was really the commissioner's office relationship with minor league baseball's uh, leadership office. But, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, over the years that, you know, I think that it's being run more of a business, uh, I think is fair to say, um, you know, and they, and it is, you know, they've, they've got their own TV network. They've got a, uh, a great, you know, digital presence with MLB.com and, and all the, you know, I think they took over Disney's uh, internet and NHL, you know, they, they really found a niche there where they, they're doing a lot of really, really brilliant things on the business side. And, and there's certainly a lot of money to be made there. And, and, um, you know, whether some of that is trickled down to the relationship with minor league baseball, you know, I, I think you probably find some people that think that that's probably the case. Uh, you know, I don't, I've never met Rob Manfred, so it's hard for me to say anything, uh, you know, about him that, you know, probably not anywhere for me to talk, but, um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, he's got his reasons for doing what they're doing and, and uh, they believe in what they're doing, and we believe in what we're doing. Yeah, the one thing Manfred has unquestionably been good at since he's assumed the commissionership is seemingly maximizing the ownership's profits at every opportunity, as you say, between MLB Advanced Media and the deals with Disney and uh, all the other leagues, Advanced Media as well, that they've accumulated. There's no question it's a near $11 billion industry at this point, and 
from yeah. a standpoint of someone who's in charge of MLB ownership. I mean, yeah, good on you there, Rob. Yeah, I but, mean, you know, the owners of those 30 clubs have to be pretty happy with the job he's doing. Right. Uh, uh, now, when you're talking about in terms of those of us who are just looking to turn on a baseball game and looking to continue the popularity of the sport into the future, I don't think any of us are flipping on MLB Network and rooting for, let's say, Tom Ricketts' spreadsheet to go off the rails. So, yeah. I mean, there there is it, there does feel like a genuine disconnect to me between how well Manfred is doing that particular aspect of his job versus how well the sport is doing right now. And that's as we've been discussing for the past half hour, the, the idea of, of growing the sport for the future. It, it feels like that because that's not an immediate profit margin for MLB ownership, that they're perfectly willing to kind of just kick that can down the road. And we'll, we'll worry about that when we come to it, or maybe that will just blow up after we've all sold our teams and let that next group of owners have to worry about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, they, and they do a lot of things to, you know, promote the future of the game, you know, with play ball clinics that they're doing all over the country and the RBI program, you know, they're, they're exposing a lot of young kids to baseball. Um, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, those kids may become baseball players they may become basketball players, football players, whatever, you know, their favorite sport may end up being. Um, but you know, the idea is, in my opinion is you want children to be fans of your game, whether it's, playing it or watching it, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, my, I have a three-year-old son and he loves going to the Clearwater games and seeing the mascot and, you know, every now and then a coach will flip him a ball or something. And, and then on Fridays and Saturdays, there's fireworks after the game and he gets to stay up late and watch the fireworks. And that's, you know, he's going to love baseball down the road because he grew up having that much fun at the ballpark. And, you know, when he goes off to college, he's probably going to buy a subscription to MLB.tv, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, that and, you know, that's uh, that's in my opinion, that's what we should all be, uh, you know, focused on is growing the game that way and, and helping build the next generation of fans. Now, you know, each major league owner's got his own reason for owning that team, I suppose, but. Um, and I suppose they're all, you know, it would make sense that they would all want to, you know, make their, their club as, as, um, profitable as they can. And I, you know, certainly don't fault anybody for that, but, you know, I, I think you were accurate in saying that this plan might be a little on the short sided side, um, might save them, uh, you know, over five years might save them $10 million or something like that. But um, are you going to turn around and spend that those millions of dollars to try and generate more fans when you could have just done that by having minor league baseball teams all over the country? Your son's example is the best possible way to illustrate this argument about how minor leagues are used to grow the popularity of baseball as a sport. Because in talking to just a, random group of my friends about, you know, how do you get into this game and what can get you into baseball to a man and to a woman, the, uh, they will always tell me that watching the game on TV, a lot of them, it doesn't really make an impact, but when they go to a game in person, that's when they see that, Oh yeah, this is actually awesome. This yeah. is a game that, that 
sucks you in in that way. And, and you get, yeah. when you see, and when you get surrounded by it, that that's when you see the magic of the game. Yeah. And unless you're going up within a short drive of any of the major league towns, the Clearwater Threshers are, you know, just one of hundreds of examples of this is how you experience the game of baseball in person. And that's what draws you in as a fan when you're that age. And yeah. so, I mean, yeah, every time we drive down 19 South, you know, and we, and we see the, the stadium lights are right there off the interstate and he sees the lights. He's like, ball game? Mm. Ball game? Are yeah. we going to a ball game? No, nobody. There's no game today, but, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe in a couple of weeks, you know, and, and he associates those tall stadium lights with we're going to watch the Threshers and he's going to get to see Finley, the mascot. And, you know, he's probably going to go home with a ball in his hand and, and, you know, he knows he's going to get a corn dog and, and a little Coke. So, you know, everything that you associate at the ball games is positive as a parent. I mean, he does whatever you tell him when, when you say, Hey, we, we're going to go to watch the Threshers tonight. If you tell him to go get in the car, he runs and gets in the car. You, know, if, if you tell him to eat the rest of his corn dog, you know, or we're not coming back next week. He's going to eat the rest of that corn dog. So it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's a great way to, to bond with your children and, and the rest of your family. I mean, my wife, you know, she's a very, very casual baseball fan to say, to put it at best, but she loves to go have a couple of beers and sit outside and talk with her girlfriends and, and, our buddies and their, they bring their kids and, you know, we sit around and we have a couple beers on the hill in the outfield and turns out it's a great Friday and Saturday night, you know, and, and let the kids play and run around and not worry about them because it's a safe place. It's clean. Um, and, you know, it's just sad to think that kids won't have that opportunity growing up in places where, you know, these 40 teams or 42 teams are uh, exist now. Yeah, I got to say that, uh, again, your son's example is perfect for me, too, because every time I'm on the road somewhere and I drive past, you know, the, I see the light towers in the distance, there's a part of my brain that always goes, ball game, ball game, yeah. and I'm 41 goddamn years old, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, anytime I'm driving somewhere and, and you know, if I'm driving through uh, Pennsylvania and I can go 30 minutes out of my way and go see a ballpark in Reading or Allentown or somewhere that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. You better believe I'm going to take that extra 30 minutes and go drive over there and, and just walk around the ballpark and check it out just because I love baseball and, and to see ballparks be shut down, you know, it would just be very disappointing. Yeah. There's, there's something special about driving through a place and realizing, yep, this is a baseball town. And I, yep, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, so one more question on this topic before we move on to the happier ending of the podcast. Uh, is there anything that we as fans can do at this point that can help you guys out in any way that. Um, you know, it's really, uh, you know, any, anybody that wants to send a letter to, you know, their, their favorite major league teams owner, you know, the, the owners are the ones that are approving this, you know, it's, it's MLB's idea, but the owner's, are the ones that are, you know, I think uh, have the opportunity to say, you know what, let's, let's take another look at this. And, um, you know, I, I don't know outside of voicing their opinions and, and through letters and, and, you know, 
social media posts, I suppose, uh, are always good, but, uh, you know, it's really, you know, major league baseball's call, you know, they, they think that this is the best way to go. And, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to reach out and send them a letter or call the office in, in, at MLB in New York city, uh, you know, by all means, make your voice heard. Cause, um, it's really the fans that are going to lose out at the end, in the end. Yeah. So take time to write a letter. I wonder, do we have any extra time on our hands right now, possibly that could be used to write a letter? Maybe. I don't know about you, but I sure do. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, a little bit. Uh, I guess I can skip watching, you know, another YouTube Cubs game for 30 minutes and send something out to Tom Ricketts. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I always like to end my podcast, uh, especially now uh, with everybody is at home uh, with what I call the social distancing book club for everyone with, all this extra time in between the writing letters to Ricketts and the Steinbrenners and to John Henry. Uh, you have a book to recommend. I've always just loved a book called stolen season by David lamb. Mm. Uh, it's a great, you know, kind of a year in the life of minor league baseball and just kind of a, you know, what, what life is really like in the minor leagues. And, and I read it when I was, quite a bit younger and, and quite frankly, it had a big impact on me wanting to work in the minor leagues. And, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like it came out in the late eighties, maybe early nineties, probably early nineties. But, uh, you know, to me it was a classic and it's always been one of my favorites. Nice. nice. And did you say we were on the Jim Tomey version? Yes. That's the 25. Yep. He's one of my favorites. I got to work with Jim in Baltimore for his last year in the big leagues. And, and, uh, it's an honor to be on the Jim Tomey broadcast because he uh, he was one of my favorites. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's. I have yet to hear anybody in baseball ever say anything bad about him. So he seems and like if to, they do, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, he he lives up to the billing of just the nicest guy in the game. Absolutely. I uh, I went to Cooperstown to watch his induction because he was just that great of a guy that you know you want to see somebody like that earn a recognition and, and, you know, become a hall of famer. You know, he, he was just tremendous. I think anybody that's ever had any interaction with him, uh, there's no way you could say a bad thing about the guy. That's wonderful. Everything you want to hear about somebody who is one of the greatest players in baseball history. And yeah. Peoria on his own. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the book that I'm recommending this week is a book called Ballpark, Baseball in the American City by Paul Goldberger. And he is the architecture critic for The New Yorker. And he wrote, I think it came out middle of last year, just a comprehensive history of the ballpark from the very first days in Elysian Fields in Hoboken through different spots in New York City to then becoming the explosive industry it, it's, it is today. And he goes in deep into several of the greatest hits, the Wrigley's, the Fenway's, Ebbets Field, of course. Uh, but he also kind of dives into like the Scheid Parks and Forbes Field, kind of the ones you hear about, but people don't really celebrate as much. And he really gives them their due as just these incredible facilities. And it's, it's a really great examination of his theory that a ballpark, the best kind of ballparks are all the ones that combine an urban setting with a pastoral atmosphere. And it's about how that there's an inherent clash in them, but that inherent clash is where the beauty of all great ballparks come from. And it's a wonderful read on the subject. So highly recommend everybody check that out. 
Jeff, do you have anything else to plug? Well, I still got you here. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, no, I mean, just keep checking in MILB.com. Hopefully we'll get the season underway, uh, you know, as soon as uh, it's safe to do so. And, and you know, once uh, Major League Baseball can get back to spring training and all that, or hopefully our guys will not be too far behind and we can get some games going on the field and then hopefully play into the early fall if possible uh, and hopefully make up some of these games we're losing now. That would be the best possible scenario at this point. And man, it would put a smile on everybody's face to see the Kings and Cedar Rapids Colonels back again. So Jeff Jeff Lance, this has been a great discussion and I will close this by saying we are rooting like hell for you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me and we appreciate everybody's support. Thank you for joining me. Thank you.